VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, Marin Talks Money listeners. I've got a new column out of Bloomberg.com. It's all about ISAs. We're coming up to ISA season. We all love an ISA. We'd all like to be an ISA millionaire. But are ISAs good for the country as well as good for you? Now, that's a question we've got to ask because this is a tax break. Are we using it properly? There's a case to be made for the Brit ISA, only allowing you to invest your ISA money in companies actually listed in the UK. You can read the argument for that at Bloomberg.com. At the same place, you can also find columns from Bloomberg's many other brilliant columnists. And be sure to subscribe for access to insightful stories, data, videos, podcasts, and much more. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Sumset Webb. This week, a conversation about the UK's future energy mix with Catherine Porter, an independent energy consultant at What Logic. And after my conversation with Catherine, stay tuned for a conversation with Bloomberg energy reporter Rachel Morrison. Catherine, hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, we're going to dive right in with a super easy question. Is net zero possible? By 2050? Probably yes. not. Is it desirable? Now, that's a very interesting question. I think that we have been focusing very single-mindedly on carbon dioxide. And some of the policies that we've been adopting in pursuit of that aim have caused other harms and are causing other harms that aren't really getting the attention that they need. I did some work recently looking at the critical minerals required for the energy transition and the huge increase in mining that's going to be needed. And the problem with mining is it's very environmentally harmful. It's often um, taking place in countries which are quite arid so issues around water supply, keep maintaining clean water, availability of water for agriculture and human consumption are quite significant. Blasting and so on causes a lot of air pollution. And you have huge challenges with managing the rights of indigenous peoples on whose land these or underneath whose land these resources are often found. And often that you have a lot of uh, labour and uh, human rights abuses associated with them. Can I just take you back and ask you about water? I, d- I think a lot of people won't understand quite how water intensive mining is. Yes. Yeah, so the issue with water comes up in a few different ways. One is that miners often deliberately remove water from the water table to reduce the risk of flooding in their mines. There have been studies in South Africa that have shown that um, water table levels might take more than a century to recover. And this affects boreholes that are being used for local people's consumption and for agriculture. Um, Water is also used quite extensively in the processing and extraction of the minerals from the rock. Um, and so they taking that water away is then unavailable for other uses. And then the, the third area where you have an impact is that there's a lot of waste material from mining and the extraction of, of metals from ore. And you get what's called tailings and they're usually stored in these ponds. And uh, all sorts of contaminants can leach out of those ponds into local water sources, whether that's fresh water or seawater. And then that also gets into the food chain. Um, both marine, like say fish and so on, and then people eat the fish and get sick or just straightforward drinking the water. And so it has a really significant impact. And we've seen in South America, there's been an increasing social pressure against mining. So in Panama recently, they closed a very large copper mine as a result of basically political pressure. Um, and now there's a, it's a lot harder to open new mines and so you have a population of people, particularly in South America and what's called the lithium triangle, um, really objecting to new extraction. They've been protests in Chile, haven't they, around lithium mines there? Exactly. Yeah. They're objecting to mining. They're objecting to extraction. They're, they say not unreasonably that they're not receiving a fair share of the economic benefits of all of this. But then on the other hand, you have populations in low-lying Pacific islands and in the Indian Ocean um, 
you know, clamouring for more action on climate change. So you have two populations in fairly sort of underdeveloped and, and more deprived parts of the world with very conflicting um, sets of interests. Mm. And, it, mm. and, and so far, there really hasn't been any effort to balance those. And sitting here in the UK, well, what right do we have anyway to say which rights are better than which other rights and all the rest of it? So I, I think that we need to start thinking uh, in a more holistic way about what we're doing and you know, realise that carbon dioxide is only one part of the puzzle. If we don't have enough drinking water, then having clean air isn't going to be that much of a comfort. Yeah, and same with agriculture and, and so on. So there's massive downsides for what we're trying to do. Exactly. Okay, so let's, let's talk then about what the ideal energy mix would be be, right? So we spent a lot of time in, in the UK in particular on the wind, wind energy and solar energy and trying to up the level of, of these particular renewables into our energy mix. Have we reached the limit, do you think, of, of what we can do there? I think so. I think solar has some contribution, but it's very much at the margin because in our times of peak energy demand, we just it's just not sunny, you know, winter evenings. Um, and we haven't found a way of seasonal storage for energy yet. It's not one that works within Britain. We don't have seasonal hydro capability because of our geology. Um, so until some other technology is developed that allows us to store electricity from the summer to the winter, that is really not that useful. Okay, so solar simply doesn't work for us beyond a certain... Yeah, I, I, I mean, of, it adds kind of at nice the margin. to have, it feels a bit good, it adds at the margin, but without a, a way to storage, uh, at least overnight, if not seasonally, it, it's kind of pointless. It, you really need to have seasonal storage to move your solar from the summer to the winter. Yeah, and we have a similar problem, surely, with, with wind, and it's not so much seasonal, but intermittent. Yeah. And, and, and intermittency is the big problem with renewables because our grid is not designed to deal with it and because we need to create a constant backup system to deal with the intermittency. That's so, exactly right. And so, so does that mean we It's extremely the expensive. And this notion that renewables are cheap because all oh, the wind is free mm. is extremely naive because you have to build at least the same capacity again, either as alternative generation or as storage to bridge those gaps when it's not windy. So straight away that costs money. But then also you have a lot more expenditure on the grid because now these, this, this renewable generation is very distributed. Um, so instead of having one big lump of generation in one place with one cable connecting it, now you need lots more cables. Um, and then also you have to manage the moment by moment intermittency. So this is called balancing and the balancing costs have gone up by billions of pounds a year recently. So all of these costs are added onto consumer bills. And it's why if you look at a chart of uh, retail versus wholesale electricity prices since the beginning of the century, you see that retail prices have just gone up sharply, mm -hmm. whereas wholesale prices sort of have wiggled around and done some other um, path. And it wasn't really until September 2021 that wholesale prices really drove the retail price because they then rose very significantly. But otherwise, that relationship hasn't been that strong because the retail price has contained all sorts of other elements, okay, wind so, subsidies in particular. So when we're told that wind is cheap, it is not taking account of the backup power, the cost to expand the grid to figure out the balancing, and possibly also the added environmental cost of the rare earth metals, etc., that, that we need to create the components. Absolutely not. And it doesn't, so it doesn't, include the direct costs that currently go on to consumer bills. So consumers don't see that rare earth environmental cost, but they definitely see the extra grid cost because the network component of bills has gone up. They see the extra balancing cost because that also comes in through the network component. Now, when I did this work on critical minerals recently, I went from being a little bit sort of neutral, think maybe we should pause the whole wind rollout while we upgrade our grid. Mm to actually being quite negative, because once you understand the huge amounts of additional copper and aluminium that are required to support that build-out, and they are the two minerals that are going to be mostly required for the energy transition, the increase in aluminium and copper supply will have to be very significant, much bigger than everything else. I mean, it takes 10 years and billions of pounds to develop a new mine. I am and all those other challenges we mentioned earlier, it starts to actually look morally questionable. And so I think a more sensible strategy is to go for nuclear, where it fits in with the way grids were designed. 
and it doesn't have the intermittency problem. So yes, nuclear has very high capital costs. Once you've built it, though, it can run for 60 years. Um, it's extremely safe. Nuclear and solar have the lowest deaths by unit of electricity generation of all generation technologies. Okay, that's unexpected um, information for most people, I would say. Yes, it is unexpected. But the, uh, absent Chernobyl, aside from Chernobyl, there have been no nuclear-related related deaths from any nuclear incident worldwide. Okay, so, so Fukushima, for example, there were no, no. deaths related to that. The deaths around that were related to the tsunami, not to Exactly. The- so... At the um, Fukushima plant itself, there were some fatalities, but this was because, you know, things fell on people's heads during the earthquake and tsunami. That's not a nuclear incident. That's just an earthquake related incident. And so you get industrial accidents. And that's why even with solar, for example, it's non-zero deaths associated with solar. Um, obviously, solar panels themselves are completely inert. Um but then if you look in the mining industry, the mining industry is extremely dangerous, very high levels. In fact, all extraction industries, oil and gas is the same, um, and coal and so on. So all of these other um, industries. And then, of course, if you're using those materials to build your your generation, then that is within that supply chain. Um, and renewables, uh, wind in particular, you get working at height issues as well. So, um, so yeah, nuclear has a very strong. Is uranium mining not as dangerous as some other kinds of mining? But there's just less of it. You need so little yes. that it doesn't make any yeah. difference. Yeah, well, I wrote about this recently, actually, saying that uh, uranium is so interesting because it's the most price insensitive thing in the world because you only need a tiny bit of it in each nuclear plant, but without it, you can't do anything. Exactly. So you'll pay anything for it, so it's not to have to to shut the thing down, right? Yeah. No. Okay, let's go back briefly. I want to come back to nuclear and how it's financed and how we should do that, etc. But let's go back to the grid. So the grid is initially designed to have these big power stations in the middle of the country, um, sending out constant power, sort of heartbeat, never stops, etc. Even with nuclear, if we're going to have a lot more electrification. Even with that, we'd still need to upgrade the grid, right? Yes, you need to build more generation and you'd need to upgrade the grid. But it's a much smaller challenge if you're not doing it using a lot of intermittent generation. It's the fact that we're having all this intermittency, which requires a doubling of capacity. So you need all of the reliable capacity that you can call on, your thermal and nuclear generation, um, as well as the wind. And it will be much more economically effective and a better use of resources to just have that and not have the wind. And obviously, you're not going to want the thermal because of the uh, the carbon emissions, but you can have the nuclear, which doesn't yeah. have the the emissions problem. Yeah. Okay. Again, I want to come back to nuclear. I'm going to put that one side because I think you know you and I probably both agree that this is the answer, the only answer, if we want to move away from fossil fuels. So let's go back and talk about fossil fuels a little because it's hard to imagine a world without them, right? So when we have um, let's stop oil throwing soup around the place, etc., even everybody's plans for net zero still have us using fossil fuels, right? Even in net zero plans, they don't go away, even in the most ambitious plans that anybody has. And even now, when the whole world are talking about reducing fossil fuel use, uh, coal and oil and gas use is still rising, Mm. right? We might be able to make it slightly fall as a percentage of, of, of use, but not much. No, even in Britain, not coal use, but oil and gas use has increased in recent years. So when we talk about in in the UK not uh, not using the shale gas that we could get access to if we wanted to and not producing any more licenses for um, exploration and production in the North Sea, this is just silly. It is, yeah. So I think the shale question is a little bit different. Okay. When it comes to the North Sea, we should we should really maximise the potential of the North Sea and get as much out of it as we possibly can, because the alternative is just imports. And then people say, oh, yes, but, you know, it has to travel around anyway because of we, d- we don't have all the refining capacity. But we still control the production emissions and we do have some refining capacity. Mm-hmm. So that argument doesn't really stack up. As soon as you're importing, you really lose control of the supply chain. With shale, it's a little bit different because although, given our geology, we're fairly confident that the gas is there, um, we can't be as confident that it can be extracted economically. And if you look at Poland as an example, you know, the Polish would crawl over hot coals to avoid uh, buying gas from Russia. Um, and they looked at shale quite extensively. And in the end, they concluded that LNG would be a better approach to get them off Russian gas. Um, and so that's the route that they've taken. So it's not a given that that can be economically extracted. Mm, okay. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts go back to, to the North Sea. So if I understand you rightly, you're suggesting that there's really kind of an, almost a moral imperative uh, to continue to, to the extent that we can produce our own oil and gas, because at least we can control it, control its production, control the way it's taken out, control the way uh, people who work on those rigs are treated, etc. So if we don't pull it out ourselves, we're going to be importing it. Correct. And we, it, it's a huge source of revenue for the Treasury. Mm. So mm. it, it's just crazy to import it when we could produce it ourselves. Yeah. And the windfall tax? Terrible. I mean, the, the windfall tax was introduced because of political outrage and public outrage around people like Shell and BP earning huge profits. Mm. Mm. Now, I kind of object to that a little bit because nobody's giving them sympathy in years when they don't earn huge profits and when they make losses. Mm-hmm. Nobody compensates them when they drill a dry well, for example. And, you know, you mentioned the people working in the North Sea. It is one of the most dangerous job- jobs that you can do. Yeah. Yeah. So I do slightly get annoyed when people are throwing stones at these companies as if they're evil and terrible when they're really not. They're providing goods and services which are essential to everyday life and which we all benefit Without from. them, our living standards would collapse. Absolutely. Um, but also... BP and Shell, only a tiny proportion of their global income comes from the UK. So really, it's it's harmed companies like Harbour Energy. Well, most people have never heard of Harbour Energy. Harbour Energy making profits or losses is not headline news. Mm. And yes, mm. it's the biggest operator in the North Sea. It's uh, taken a big hit to its finances as a result of the windfall tax. And as a result, it's reprofiling its activities away from the UK. And what we're seeing is that across the North Sea, um, operators there are scaling back their activities and we're seeing rigs moving out of the area. Now, once these rigs go, it'll be really hard to get them back. And obviously without rigs, you're not going to do anything. So mm-hmm. th- it's been really damaging and it, it needs to go. And this is politicians need to avoid these kinds of knee-jerk reactions. The The windfall tax has not achieved what it was intended to achieve. All it's done is harm companies that most people have never heard of and don't really care about. And the belief at the time uh, was that it would raise large amounts of revenue without affecting production. Well, was that the it, view? It, it's, Must have well, been. I think, it, yeah. I, I, and now the government is trying to say we'll have these annual licensing rounds as a way of signalling ongoing commitment to the region. But the best way to signal that commitment would be to get rid of the EPL. Where are the rigs going? West Africa. West Africa. Mm. They're certainly not coming back, are they? No. <laughs> no. There's one form of energy that I haven't asked you about, and that is um, biomass. And one of the big conversations I know in the energy world is about drags. Is drags good or is drags bad? Right? And I think you might be on drags bad side. Um, I think, well, well wood, first, why do we explain what bio. drags does? So, um, drags used to be a coal fired power station. And because everyone got very squeamish about coal, they decided that they would um, initially co-fire with wood pellets and then convert to using wood pellets completely. And wood pellet biomass is considered and has this sort of very neutral carbon accounting because the idea is that you plant new trees and then those trees grow and um, absorb carbon dioxide and that offsets the carbon dioxide that you're emitting by burning the wood. 
And so Drax is a huge power station and it burns a lot of wood. And this wood is being sourced in the US. Uh, and they like to say it's mostly waste wood, but it would be hard to supply Drax using just waste wood. Well, hang on, I'm, then, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you because I've got, I've got their table here. I have a Drax supporter who sent it to me. Um, sawmill and other wood industry residues, 19.7%. Branches and tops, 3%. Uh, thinnings, 13.8%. Low-grade round wood, 22%. That seems pretty valid. Well, what they do next is they have to chop it all up. They have to dry it out and they have to pelletize it. Mm -hmm. All of those steps take energy. Then they load it onto ships and those ships are fueled with bunker fuel, which is the dirtiest bit at the bottom of the crack. And then they sail it halfway around the world to Yorkshire and then they set fire to it. And the emissions from the chimneys at Drax when burning wood pellets are higher than they were when they were burning coal. So not only is this bad for the people of Yorkshire because their air quality goes down, it's bad for all the people in between Yorkshire and the US because of all the emissions from the shipping. And it's bad for the people in the US because of all the emissions from drying, pelletizing and all the rest of it. Okay, how about this? How about and this? Honestly, anybody can plant trees. So you could the burn the coal and plant some trees. The said residual fibre to pellet plants significantly improved the economics of timberland. This has contributed greatly to landowners making the economic decision to shift from less profitable land use, like carbon-nasty cotton in the US, to planting trees for lumber and biomass. Timberlands of the southeast of the US are now growing in size, increasing carbon sequestration and habitats for the nice animals. But what type of doing timber? It for you, is it? No, because they're, they're fast-growing varieties, so you're yeah. losing biodiversity by doing that. Mm. Okay, you're just not going to be convinced on this one, no, are you? No, no. And there, are, there are other forms of biomass energy. So I think it's always important to be specific that we're talking about wood pellet biomass in the context of Drax. But when you look at the supply chain emissions and the fact that the stack emissions are higher than they are with coal, then really the best thing that Drax could do other than just closing would be go back to burning coal. And yes, you'll have some emissions shipping the coal, but you don't have to dry it and pelletize it and do all that other stuff. Okay, so would really the best thing for us to do, absolutely the best thing for us to do, is to forget about the wood pellets, forget about everything, go back to coal and just open up our old coal mines again, dig up the coal, stick it into drags, and then you've got a nice, constant, uh, efficient source of power that just goes directly into the grid without any of the environmental consequences for other countries. So, Or is that now really pushing it? I think that's pushing it because I don't think we're going to sustain a coal industry with two coal power stations because mm. we've got Drax and Ratcliffe and they're both getting quite old. So honestly, I would, keep, I would have them as coal because it's cleaner than wood pellets um, and I wouldn't close them because I, th I worry that we're going to run out of generating capacity come the end of this decade. So I think closing anything that isn't actually broken shouldn't happen. Um, and one or two coal power stations isn't going to destroy the planet, particularly they, not when they, you look at what's going on in China. Yes, and they um, create excellent backup for exactly, everything else. Exactly. Yeah. So then, what's going on in China being the increasing use of coal? There, exactly. I mean, that's massive, a really massive interesting increase of in yeah, using. It's really coal. interesting because their use of renewables is increasing massively, but so is their use of every yeah. fossil fuel known to man because exactly. their energy use is expanding so fast. Yeah, and it's orders of magnitude bigger than what we're doing. So one or two coal power stations in the UK, not even running all the time, is not really moving the dial from a climate perspective. Um, but if we have blackouts then that would have very serious consequences. If we had winter blackouts here in the UK, people would die. Um, mm. uh, that's highly likely. So to avoid that very bad outcome, running a couple of coal power stations doesn't seem like a bad trade-off. Okay, so we leave Drax doing what it does, but we probably leave it doing what it does with biomass because it's not going back to coal. Um, and as you say, if we don't have those backup generators running, we are vulnerable. So we need Drax and its biomass if we're not going back to coal, even if you don't strictly, strictly approve of it and the way it does things. If we didn't have it, we'd be putting ourselves at risk. Exactly. And I think it's unfortunate because it's received so many subsidies yeah. to do something that's far worse than it was doing previously. Mm. Um, and, and I don't criticise Drax for that. I mean, the management team has done a bang-up job, really, of persuading they've governments. They've been incentivised well, to yeah, do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. They've persuaded governments to pay them lots of money to do something even worse than they were doing before. I'm um, and and really give an obsolete business model new legs. So their management has done a br brilliant job. I don't blame them. 
they're doing what they're supposed to do for their shareholders. Yeah, um, yeah. It's the government, and not just our government, you know, the EU is in exactly the same boat with the way that it incentivizes biomass. Yeah, so our governments have made a real mess of this energy business, haven't they? Incentivizing all the wrong things. They have, but this is not, is not a political comment because the mainstream parties are all broadly in the same boat on these things. I think the Conservatives now are starting to see a route to maybe if they soften their commitments on net zero, that gives them a, a you know, a slight benefit in the polls, given that they're so far behind yeah, well, and the, the that, result given, of Uxbridge. But yeah. I mean, this is written into law. Well, yeah, but laws can be changed. Maybe quite tough. I don't think so. I mean, it depends. If you have a decent sized majority, then you can do it. And what people say, oh, well, the net zero target is written into law, so it's definitely going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I completely disagree with that as an argument, because I think you'll get into the 2040s, be remote from the target be facing an enormous bill and a drop in people's living standards to achieve it. And suddenly there'll be a growing consensus to move or change the target. Mm. Okay, so well, it, won't happen, it won't happen now and, and it might not happen in the 2030s, but as you approach the 2050 deadline... It will happen. Exactly. So, and you, you can't stop a future parliament passing different laws. So a future parliament, just because a law exists today, does not mean it will exist tomorrow. Mm. Do you think that, um, this is an off-topic uh, question, that uh, if Rishi Sunak were to give one last gift to the nation before he's removed from office in the next mm. election, it would be removing net zero? Would that be a gift he could give us? So I, don't, I think that's possibly too abstract as a gift. I think that what he would need to do is to phrase it in ways that, where people could see a benefit to them in the short term, because that's really what's hurting people right now is the high cost of living. So, uh, and net zero, people are starting to realise that's going to make energy and goods more expensive. You know, it's just starting to talk about carbon border adjustment mechanisms and things like that. So that's going to make stuff more expensive. It will be inflationary. Um, okay. So, well, let, well let's, yeah. let's look at the answer then and we can come back to it, to a Sunak gift because then maybe <laughs> a gift you could give us around this. Let's come back to nuclear, which I think you, you believe is the answer to our energy problems, right? First, explain, explain to me why, why that is and the extent, extent to which it's feasible inside the time frame that we need. So I think nuclear ticks all the boxes mm-hmm. because, as I said before, it fits in perfectly with the way the grid was designed. It's not intermittent. Mm-hmm. It produces huge amounts of energy from a very small site. Um, and once you've built it, it'll last decades. You know, now, now you're really looking at 60 years um, operating lifetime for these reactors. Um, and they are very safe. Yeah. So what's not to like? Yeah. The high upfront co- cost and the waste, those are the two things not to like. Whereas the waste is actually very manageable. The volumes of waste involved are, are extremely small. Uh-huh. Uh, the problem we have with waste these, at the moment is a, a legacy issue. It's dealing with all the stuff at Sellafield from back in the day when waste wasn't handled properly. But the waste that comes out of power stations now, although we haven't identified a long-term disposal site, it's all being stored in Safely. a perfectly safe way. Mm. The volumes are small. It's all very manageable. When you say volume just small, what do you mean? Well, like a Coke can's worth a year or that kind oh, of really? thing. I mean, okay, it's like, yeah, tiny, yeah, it's tiny really tiny small. Yeah. Okay. But... Compared, key- and compared with all the other toxic waste that we generate from all of the other industries that we have going on, it's really small. And people forget that. They they think nuclear as being unusually bad, but actually other industries both produce more toxic waste and are actually far more dangerous. The biggest industrial accident ever was Bhopal. Nobody nobody wants to stop making pesticides as yeah. a result of that. Okay, but how do we get buy-in for this? In that, you know, to, to get some power stations up using nuclear reasonably quickly, i.e. in the time frame that is required, given the already concerned about having, about us having blackouts towards the end of the decade, right? Well, step really- number one is don't prematurely close the um, advanced gas-cooled reactors, mm-hmm. which on the current schedule would all be shut by March 2028. They could continue running into the 2030s and they need to. And that requires the Office for Nuclear Regulation to uh, soften its approach in certain areas where it's really taking a much yeah, too we're hard We're really line. bad at softening regulation in the UK. We're well, really bad at that. So th- to keep those running requires a regulation shift. It does. And to build new ones inside the time frame in the next sort of 15 years. I would years personally disband also, the ONR and, and replace it with something else because I think it's 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 got a little bit out of control. Um, and the structures around it, so it sits under DEFRA, it's not connected with 
um, the Department for Energy in any way. So it's, uh, and how much of a priority is it for DEFRA, you know, looking after nuclear safety? I, I think we need to, we need to do better. Um, so step number one is don't close the AGRs. Step number two, we need to start quickly building new reactors. Now, there are various sites around the country, Wilver being the most obvious, where there's not just local buy-in, there's an actual active local desire to have a new reactor put on that site. They want it. They would, they would crawl over broken glass to get it. The local MP is known as Atomic Kitten because she's <laughs> pushing for getting a new reactor at Wilver. This is, you know, it's, it's like the perfect storm of everybody wanting it in that area. So we, you know, it's pushing it an open door. Let's, let's do it. Now, the most credible route to delivery at the moment is with Kepco, the Korean electric power company. They are about to open their eighth. Um, APR 1400. They've got four open in South Korea. There's a fourth one about to open in UAE at Baraka. They're delivering these reactors in eight years on time and on budget. No one else at the moment can come close, neither EDF nor Westinghouse, who are the other competitors in the Western world, if you like, um, are anywhere near that. So we order now, we can have them by the early 30s. Correct. Capco, I think, is estimating about a 10-year delivery for the UK, given sort of UK specifics. Now, um, their reactor is not certified in the UK, but it is certified in the US and there's a version that's been certified by the EU. Now, the government has said it wants to cooperate with trusted country regulators. This is a perfect opportunity to do that. If this technology is good enough for the NRC in the US, it should be good enough for us. Like the NRC is a perfectly credible regulator. It's not some Mickey Mouse outfit. They were, you know, they have high standards. So we shouldn't be reinventing the wheel to get that certified here. Mm, okay. What about the, um, and we should pay for it. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. So who's going to pay for it? It seems so to me that, and I'm, I'm my thinking, view. Yeah. Okay. Tell me your view. My view is not interesting. Tell me the yours. government <laughs> should, uh, at least for the first. So I think we need to sign a contract with Capco for maybe yeah. five reactors. And not all at once, you know, come up with some sensible delivery schedule. Yeah. And at least the first couple need to be paid for with public money on the public balance sheet. Because energy security is as important as any other Correct, yes. I mean, we don't yeah. outsource funding the military or the police to the mm -hmm. private sector. Mm -hmm. And that's our physical security as a nation. So we shouldn't necessarily take a different view for energy security. Mm, yeah, but now, then, well, I then believe food that security actually, then, uh, well, we'll come back but to we that. Don't, but we're not in the same boat with food security. So... I believe that one of the challenges at the moment with securing private investment is there's a concern. Well, there are two issues. One is kind of easily overcome. Investors have something of a blind spot around nuclear that's similar to their blind spot about AI. They sort of put it in a, oh, this is quite complicated and scary bucket. And then they're just not doing the normal risk analysis. So it's sort of like, just work the problem like you would any other problem. You're risk professionals, for goodness sake, just mm -hmm. do your job. The other aspect is a genuine concern over regulatory consistency and the stability or otherwise of the policy and regulatory environment. Um, and those are legitimate concerns. And I think that the government needs to do more to de-risk the construction phase. So if it just simply put its own money down, and of course the government can borrow more cheaply than any of the other potential investors. So this would also reduce costs to consumers. I'm fairly confident that after construction, they could refinance and, and probably at a profit as well, because these will be long-term profitable assets. So once you've de-risked construction, these are going to be a very different and more attractive investment prospect. And also once you've demonstrated the commitment, you started rebuilding supply chains, you started building up workforce skills and the confidence on delivery, then actually you probably find more investor interest even before the operating phase that you might get people coming into mm. finance construction. Yeah. As long as the build costs didn't get out of control, as they seem to on everything we try and build. Well, no, but Capco has been keeping its costs under control. Mm. So we need to just bring them in and, yeah. and give them the ability to deliver in the UK in the way they've delivered in That's South fine. Korea and UAE. Yeah. What about uh, small modular reactors? I mean, these we've been building these for years and sticking them on submarines, right? So yeah, but unfortunately, we can't land. just put the same ones on land because they well because they use a, a much more enriched type of fuel that's not actually licensed for use on, in civil applications. 
So the idea with nuclear submarines is they can stay on under the sea mm. for years on end. You know, the, the, they resurface because the people need to yeah, exactly, and they need feeding and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you don't need to refuel them. Um, that type of fuel can't currently be. I mean, you but, you but can. Why? Well, I mean, if it's safe it's, enough, well, it's for because our, it's oh. not considered as safe. That's why. I mean, there are concerns over the safety. Those um, poor sailors. Well, yeah, but if you're a, a nuclear submarine operator in the navy, then you have other safety concerns. I mean, that, yeah, that's already part of the deal. Okay, if you so like. you can't just transfer those to land. That so doesn't work. That at the moment, none of the um, this type of fuel is not. It's just not licensed. Now they're starting to increase the. Uh, concentrations of fuel allowed in, in civil applications, but it's very much a, a softly, softly approach. Um, so maybe in some point in the future they would be able to do it, but it's not at the moment. Now, I think small modular reactors have great potential, but it's they're more a 20, you know, mid 2030s onwards conversation, and we just can't afford to wait. The most promising ones are. Um, a couple of uh, boiling water reactor technologies that are being uh, developed in Canada. Um, and if they work, that will be uh, very promising, but they're essentially a scaled down version of large scale reactor technology. Okay. Um, is it possible that all our problems will go away once we can mirror solar energy from space? Well, all our problems could go away if we invented nuclear fusion. All our problems could go away if we could capture unicorn tears and harness them. <laughs> trying to end on an optimistic <laughs> note, Catherine. <Sorry. laughs> All right, let me, let me try something else you can come up with an optimistic answer to. Um, how confident are you that we will get our energy mix sorted out before we end up having power cuts? The real question being, should I buy candles? I, well, I actually advise people with elderly relatives to buy torches and have them sort of secreted around their houses because if they had power cuts and, you know, navigating stairs and stuff, it, it's, that's kind of dangerous. So, um, if the longer we leave it to act, the narrower our choices become. So we're rapidly approaching a stage where the government's going to have to hugely increase the procurement target for the capacity market and build more gas fired, unabated gas fired generation, which will be expensive because there's uncertainty about what, how they will operate post 2030. It can be reasonably quick. But they can be delivered in under two years. So that could be done to fill the gap. If that isn't done, then you're really looking at demand curtailment. So if you're expecting a blackout because of a shortage and you can see that shortage coming, then you have to tell your industrial demand to turn itself off. Yeah. So you can potentially avoid blackouts that way. Of course, you're much, you're greatly reducing system stability mm-hmm. and increasing the risk of widespread blackouts when you're doing that. And damaging your economy. But it's hugely damaging. It'll be politically and economically damaging to do that. So we do currently have the tools to avoid blackouts. Don't close the AGRs. Don't close anything else unless it's actually broken. And look at building new gas, because if you don't, you know, you're running out of time. Yeah. And try and accelerate the build of new nuclear so that when you do have to close the AGRs in the beginning of the next decade, you've got something coming on to replace it. Yeah, I'm buying candles. And then you've got electrification to consider yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay. Catherine, thank you so much. I will just ask you one last question, which um, uh, you'd have to take a stab at, even though it's not your area, because I ask everybody and I can't let you off. Um, If I was going to lock you up somewhere for 10 years, somewhere nice, by the way. um, (laughs) And before I did that, I asked you to make one investment and one investment only. And I normally say to people, they have a choice between Bitcoin or gold. Um, But in your case, I'm going to add on uranium. Well, between Bitcoin or gold, I'd do gold. Mm -hmm. between gold and uranium. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd probably do uranium. Yeah. Well, of course, if you go for the gold, you can always wear it afterwards. You yeah. can, yeah. Well, you buy uranium, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And Bitcoin, you just, you're just you not make con- something prettier. <laughs> exactly. And Bitcoin, you're not convinced by? Not really, no. Wonderful. That was very kind of you to answer that question. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. That was fascinating. Thank you. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. now to reflect on what we just heard from Catherine Porter is Bloomberg Energy reporter Rachel Morrison. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Hugely appreciate it. That was an interesting conversation. Um, and I wanted to start by asking you what you thought about Rachel's thoughts on net zero. Uh, she says, probably not possible by 2050, which seems to be a, a growing consensus, actually. And she's also not convinced it's desirable either. So do, do you, from your work, do you think that it's possible by, by 2050 on our current trajectory? I think when we're thinking about it, we're thinking about the word net within that and how much emphasis there's going to be on that net. So there's new technologies where you can capture carbon from the air and so you can remove carbon. So can we offset that against some of the emissions that we haven't been able to prevent? So I think within that, we could probably get close um, by 2050, it's very hard at this point because it's so far away. I think we're looking at some of the 2030 goals, um, particularly in the UK, the clean grid by 2035 under the Conservatives or 2030 under Labour. And people are saying that that looks very difficult. That's just too soon for some of those technologies like carbon capture and storage or hydrogen. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's really meeting it at the moment based on what we can do at the moment is more about carbon capture than anything else. That I think we're at a crossroads where we sort of have to see which becomes more successful and more widely used. And that's on a global basis, carbon capture or hydrogen, both, especially if it's green hydrogen, can solve some of that problem in the places that are difficult to decarbonize, such as industry. And then when we moved on to talk about desirable, this is when it all got pretty interesting with Catherine, because she looked at it very much through the prism of cost uh, and not just uh, financial cost, but also environmental costs that not everyone looks at. So we talked a bit about water supply and the massive amount of water used in mining for the critical minerals that we need for transition and talked about the the, the general environmental harms and also social harms that that mining might uh, might have in, in the kind of countries where lithium, et cetera, is. And that was quite an interesting way to look at it because it's not something you hear about that much, that, that um, A, this focus on financial cost, which is, is gathering speed, right? And B, this focus on the environmental cost of, of the minerals. What did you think about her take on all that? Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of the focus is tends to be on the kind of sustainability from the kind of labour um, involved in some of those mines. Um, and the availability of of the critical minerals needed for for making batteries and the water aspect is interesting because you know it seems like almost every solution we find has some other um strain on the environment and on the planet when it comes to cost i think it's quite a difficult calculation to make particularly for renewable energy and um yeah the conversation was focused very much on the lowest cost for consumers and there is this idea of the trilemma, which is an idea that sort of come back into fashion where you have cost, you have security of supply and you have environment. Um, and at one time, only one of those things can be at the apex of the triangle. So at the detriment of the other two. So if you put cost at the top, then obviously that might mean using fossil fuels for longer because it might be cheaper. 
But if you put the environmental sustainability at the top, then, you know, perhaps one of those things that has to give is that we have to pay more. And I think what she didn't mention is that having huge amounts of renewable energy, which um, feeds into the grid at a low cost, does lower the price of energy for consumers. So we do have that bill lowering impact of having lots of renewable energy. Yes, we have to pay for it. We have to subsidise those technologies at the moment, but the cost has come down significantly. You know, you kind of are weighing up that you you pay to build it now and it operates for decades into the future, giving us a source of clean and low cost electricity um, versus just sticking with fossil fuels and not building anything new. Yeah. But when you say it brings down costs, you are talking about the future, right? I mean, it's more expensive now. We have to rebuild, we have to put up all this infrastructure and we have to pretty much rebuild the grid from from scratch and make it much, much bigger and and develop it in a very different way to take on many, many, many tens of thousands of different sources of energy as opposed to the small number of, of energy sources we used to have in terms of big power stations in the middle of the country, et cetera. So we have we have to do that and then we have to pay for the backup power, the intermittency, et cetera. So in the short term, that doesn't reduce bills. I mean, we see that in our bills, it doesn't reduce bills, but the hope is that it does over the medium to longer term, right? Well, it does. You can see it on your bills if you have um, one of the kind of flexible or agile tariffs and it's a super windy day, then you can see that you get exposure to a price that is much, much lower than usual. So you can, not everybody has that. I mean, it makes more sense if you have something like an electric vehicle, but it is possible for the consumer to get exposed to that decrease in price when renewables are plentiful. I think what you're describing um, is the shift from this big centralised system where we have big power stations and big centres of demand to a much more decentralised, lots of input points along the grid for your heat pump, your electric vehicle. And yes, that requires a lot, a lot of investment. But on the other hand, the power stations we have don't last forever. A lot of them are going to close. We have old nuclear plants that are going to close, gas plants that will close. They reach the end of their life. So whatever, we would have to build something new we can't just, you know, use things that are 60, 70 years old. So there would be some kind of rebuilding no matter what we did. And I think when you look at some of the research, you can find that the status quo and continuing to use fossil fuels that are um, subject to big price swings like the war in Ukraine ends up being more expensive than investing and receiving the benefit of that cheaper, cleaner power. Mm, well, it seems like, um, I mean, the... the uh the efficiency and cost base of renewables such as solar and wind is always going to cause arguments, partly because there's the arguments around land use efficiency, etc. But And fossil fuels, of course, are always going to cause arguments. But there does seem to be this one thing in the middle that I talked about a lot with Catherine, which is nuclear power, which seems like an increasingly obvious solution. If we just really focus on building out nuclear, you don't really need anything else. You can you can stop with relying on China for, for solar. You can stop with worrying about where the minerals come from. We can stop arguing about whether we have to colonize the moon to get the lithium, etc. We can just get on with it. And that seemed, the way she described it and the way that I've heard other people talk about it, to be incredibly compelling. It takes away all the other problems. Do you think she's being too simplistic about that? I think that I mean, it depends which country, but, you know, in the UK, for example, we are supportive of nuclear here. The government both on both sides um, supports a build out of nuclear. The problem is it takes so long. The big stations um, that like Hinkley Point C, Sizewell C that are um, Hinkley's being built, it's taking much longer and costing more. Um, and there's been several examples throughout Europe. There's one project in France that EDF is also working on, Flamonville, that's been incredibly delayed. And so if we ha if we could rely on nuclear to be built qu quickly um, and not cost a lot more than we were thinking, you know, perhaps it could play a bigger role. And I think most people sort of think yes, in part, but maybe it's not the full solution for those reasons. And the small modular reactors are interesting too, but we haven't got a working example of those yet. You know, they're still in their infancy of development. So it's sort of a leap to rely on them too much at this point. Although she did say, I mean, I found at the very end of the conversation that, that, that we just closed on, we were talking about um, the Korean electrical power company, Kepco, and how they're just opening opening these things all over the place. They've got four open in, in South Korea. They're opening them all over the place, and they're delivering them in eight years on time, on budget, in a way that uh, nobody else is. And uh, I said to her, so if we order them now, we can have them by the early 30s. And she's like, yeah, absolutely, and we should do that. I think 
the nuclear uh, sector would respond by saying that our kind of safety standards are so high here. I mean, I know that getting a reactor design approved takes a very long time. Um, and I've visited the Hinkley site. And even though we're not likely to have a tsunami, they have to build walls that would protect um, the power plant from the impact of a tsunami. You remember Fukushima, you talk about it in um, in the interview. And there's just trying to protect against that I think would mean it would be difficult to loosen the regulations and allow nuclear to move faster. But often it's actually the construction and the people that um, takes a long time, the supply chains. It's not necessarily just the regulation. Mm. Okay. I mean, there, there, there is, or she suggests that there's a case for not being quite so, so um, safety conscious, obviously very safety conscious, but she does suggest that we go a little OTT with this. In that, I mean, for example, at, at, at Fukushima, there was not actually a nuclear accident. There was a tsunami, but it didn't cause any any deaths from the nuclear station itself, just from, you know, the, the kind of physical damage of a tsunami. Yeah, I think it's just such a high risk. And I'm sure you remember from some of the um, worst points in the war in Ukraine that there were worries about a nuclear plant there. And if you know, if there's an attack on a nuclear plant and the wind blows towards Europe, you know, we could all be impacted too. And it's impossible to contain and stop. And so it just, you know, policymakers just cannot risk that, even if it's unlikely. Um, it's still the Fukushima incident impacted how you build nuclear all over the world, um, regardless of the likelihood of it actually happening. Okay, I'm, I'm getting that you're just not quite as keen as... <laughs> as Catherine was, and don't see it as quite a sort of straightforward way out of the whole thing. I think it's part of the solution, but I think a huge um, amount of capacity would just be very difficult to do. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we finally have our show email. So send along your ideas, your questions, your comments and of course your criticisms to Money at Bloomberg.net. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Catherine Porter and of course to Rachel Morrison. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Seifer. And I'm Jerry O'Shea. We spent over 30 years in the CIA uncovering global conspiracies. Conspiracies aren't just a theory to us, which is why we started our podcast, Mission Implausible. Everyone has questions about conspiracy theories, but with our background, we can actually answer those questions. Anyone can just start screaming about microchips and Jewish space lasers, but it's our mission to remove the bull and get down to what's real. Listen to Mission Implausible on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.